Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, host of Foreign Policy Live. Every week, I sit down with world leaders and policy experts on the issues that matter most to you. People like U.S. climate envoy John Kerry, economist Larry Summers, and Ukraine's deputy foreign minister Emine Zaparova. Whether it's the U.S.-China relationship, the war in Ukraine, or the Global South's growing clout, Foreign Policy Live is your weekly fix for smart thinking about the world. Listen and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead from New Lines magazine. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. In June, President Joe Biden rolled out the red carpet for a man who was once barred from setting foot on U.S. soil. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was only the third world leader to be invited for a formal state visit during Biden's presidency, in a mark of American eagerness to nurture a relationship that both men referred to as a defining partnership of the century. The previous travel ban had been issued when Modi was chief minister of the state of Gujarat, after he was accused of encouraging attacks against Muslims during the 2002 riots. Since entering government, Modi's Hindu nationalist government has continued to curtail religious freedoms and has faced strident criticism at home and abroad for its crackdowns against minorities and the free press. Biden, however, chose to emphasize India and America's shared values as democracies. His brushing aside of human rights concerns was a clear sign of how important India has become to America's grand strategy. And yet, the cracks in their increasingly close relationship still shone through. As America seeks to expand the sanctions regime against Russia for the invasion of Ukraine, India has declined to participate in order to preserve its warm relationship with Moscow. Moreover, though the two powers share an adversary in China, India has not been nearly so committed to its containment as Washington might like. America may have come to see India as a crucial part of its vision for the global order, but it's not clear that India shares the same vision. Joining me today to discuss the past, present and future of the two nations' relationship is Ravi Agrawal, the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine. He's the host of the podcast FP Live and author of the book India Connected, How the Smartphone is Transforming the World's Largest Democracy. Before joining Foreign Policy, he worked for CNN as the network's New Delhi bureau chief and correspondent. Ravi, welcome to the podcast. Great to be on, Faisal. So I wanted to start by talking a bit about the visit itself. How big a deal is a state visit like this for Prime Minister Modi? It's a big deal. I think people in India, especially, while they might often dismiss the West and while nationalism is on the rise in India, they still measure themselves by yardsticks in the West. Mm. So the fact that this was a state visit, the fact that the red carpet was rolled out, as you said, the fact that Modi got to address a joint session of Congress, these are all markers of importance, their symbolic uh, importance to all of these things that is not lost on the Indian people. I think they see the fact that Modi is addressing Congress in Hindi and being translated into English for Congress people. They see that as India having arrived. They see that as their language, their culture, their point of view being projected on Americans. And so there's a great deal of pride in India, at least, to see India being given that importance. And remember, Biden's only had two other state visits before Modi. There was Macron of France and Yoon of South Korea. So, you know, more than two years into his term, 
for Modi to be just the third, I think Indians, again, they look at that and they feel like, hmm, we're important. That's a good yeah. thing. And, and about that, what is your explanation of why Biden did that? Because it is intriguing, isn't it? One is traditional ally, France, fine. And then you have South Korea and India. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And Modi has been to the US several times before. He's addressed a joint session of Congress before, but he hasn't had a state visit. So this was important for Biden as well, I think, because, you know, the the animating force above all else for the United States right now in its foreign policy, I think, is China. Every single thing it does with one eye on China, whether it is prosecuting its foreign policy in Europe with NATO, which has now added China as a strategic threat, whether it is the war in Ukraine, whether it is its policies in the Middle East or especially in Asia, all of it is done with one eye on China. And that is where I think the US-India relationship has over the last few years begun to change. To be clear, the trajectory of this relationship has been on the up for decades, since I think the early 2000s, when India and the United States began to become closer, you know, kind of ending the Cold War era of suspicion uh, between the two. So that trajectory for the last few US presidencies has already been in place. There's immense bipartisan consensus in the US about India's sort of shared values, the fact that they're the two biggest democracies in the world, other platitudes like that that you may hear. And they're more than platitudes. I think the two share a lot in common. But it is in the last five years that both countries have seen their relations with China sour. Mm. That is what has brought them closer Mm. together. It is what has allowed areas that they were unwilling to cooperate on, such as defense ties, tech transfer, semiconductors. Those are the areas in which they are now much more willing to cooperate. And again, it is all because of China. And that's a big part of it, isn't it? I mean, the the visit wasn't mere optics. When Biden calls the relationship the most consequential in the world, he means that they are going to actively put resources and technology um, behind this relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So the technology that they put behind it, for example, uh, the much cited General Electric F414 engine, um, which the US has agreed to sort of jointly produce in India, that's Mm. a huge deal. It's going to enable uh, India to be able to produce fighter jets, essentially. And this is technology that the US hasn't shared with anyone else in this way that it is with India. A whole bunch of other areas of cooperation that really advance the US-India partnership. But an important way to see all of this is that America has signed off on many of these things, A, as I was saying, with one eye on China, but B, turning a blind eye to much of what else is going on in India. So, you know, even 10 years ago when, you know, for example, Barack Obama was president, I remember when he came to India and, you know, was able to directly criticize democratic backsliding in India. U.S. leaders of all stripes 10, 15 years ago were much more confident and open in calling out areas that they thought India was falling behind on, areas of concern, whether it was religious freedom, whether it was backsliding of the press, whether it was judicial freedom. Those are all areas now that 
America at least seems to have decided that it no longer wants to chastise India in public. It may be saying things in private. We don't know about that. Yeah. But the public nature of remonstration has, has just disappeared. And you can argue that this is, in fact, a more effective way to conduct diplomacy. Talking down to other countries isn't always helpful. But I think the reason why it's worth calling this out is that that is not what the U.S. does with other countries. So mm. with China, it is very clear that it is always going to call out China for human rights violations. The U.S., you know, relishes bringing up uh, Uyghurs, for example, and how China has subjugated its Muslim population. It brings it up in every form it possibly can. So there's a certain amount of hypocrisy, you could say, do, in do the you, way in which it's dealing with India. Do you think it was the right move, though, from Biden to not challenge Modi publicly? Well, I mean, that's a difficult question. It's it's a realist question because ultimately Biden is looking at some sort of a larger picture. And mm -hmm. in that larger picture, what matters most of all is competition with China. Everything else falls to the wayside. If you agree with that larger picture, if that's how you see the world, then sure, then mm -hmm. what Biden did makes a lot of sense. If you have a different framework of looking at the world, if you have a human rights first approach to the world, if you have a values first approach to the world, I imagine you would end up with a very different foreign policy in general. So mm. it really is about larger kind of structural frameworks of how the Biden administration views the world and how it wants to project American power. In this case, again, it all comes back to China. Yeah. I mean, if we're thinking about the beyond the visit, You've said before that you've characterized India's role in the global order as a swing state. What do you mean by that in the geopolitical context? Right. Well, so India sees itself maybe not as a swing state, but as a, as a country that makes independent choices on a variety of issues based on what it needs in a particular circumstance. India tends to not lead with values. It tends to not lead with what it thinks, you know, the hegemon of the current moment may want, whether it's the United States, whether it's uh, a more multipolar world. You know, India has long believed that, you know, alliances don't always help. It has always believed that, you know, its role is to really go its own way. And in this moment in particular, under Prime Minister Modi, as India has become richer, as its clout has increased, as it's become a bigger economy, it's now the fifth biggest economy in the world, I think it's being more assertive about the kinds of choices it can make. So you mentioned in your excellent introduction that India didn't go along with US sanctions on Russia, for example. There are several ways of breaking this down. I mean, India and Russia are historic allies going back several decades to the Cold War and beyond. And Russia has indeed stood by India in crisis after crisis. So there's continuity there. America, on the other hand, has not always stood up for India. And India remembers when America, in fact, was much closer to Pakistan during mm. the Cold War. Right. So, But if you look at the real reason why India chose to not only not go along with sanctions on Russia, but dramatically increased its purchases of Russian oil. In fact, today, India is importing about 45% of Russia's crude. Part of India's rationale there is that it's 
much cheaper oil. I mean, we're talking about oil that is heavily discounted from the market price. Um, And for a country like India, which imports most of its oil, it needs that oil to be cheap. Otherwise, it is going to have runaway inflation at home. So for its own domestic concerns and economic needs, it is making this choice to go and purchase Russian oil, even though it may not be making America or the West happy. We can debate that later. Um, But it is making independent choices in the same way that the United States or China are making their own independent choices. And I think the framework through which to see this is is Indian pride. India sees itself not only as an emerging power, but as a re-emerging power, as a power whose time has come, but whose time also happened centuries ago when it was a much bigger player in the world and it had a much larger share of global GDP. So if you tie that in with the current moment with Indian nationalism, Hindu nationalism, you have a newly assertive India that is going to continue to make independent choices. It's interesting that you think that the most important aspect of this relationship is China, because if the most important aspect is what's happening in Ukraine, then you could see that the Biden administration would be reluctant to reward India's recalcitrance by giving them this visit. But if China is the most important uh, foreign policy challenge, then even something as large as the invasion of Ukraine can kind of be pushed to the side because the focus has to be on this 20, 30, 40 year competition with China. I think that's exactly right. In a grand strategy, longer term perspective, eyes on the prize, it's very clear that the US sees China as you know, a much bigger issue for it. Whereas Russia and Ukraine, it's contained in a different way. You know, the United States seems to be managing managing it well as is. You know, it can deal with what India is doing. Now, I should point out, however, there are diverging perspectives on the impact of India's oil purchases from Russia. So, you know, what we often hear in the public domain is that the global south is giving Russia all this money by purchasing its oil, and that's correct. But remember that it is so cheap that yeah. Russia is not even breaking even from selling this oil. That's point one. But point two is that if India didn't buy oil from Russia, it would be buying it from somewhere else. That would send the global price of oil soaring. And if that happens, that would then affect Americans at the pump at home. So you see where I'm going with this. Mm. America might sometimes criticize countries for purchasing oil from Russia. And in fact, it doesn't criticize India at all. Let's be clear, Mm. not in public. public, But it may actually also be convenient for the United States that in, in creating this sort of price cap for oil and enforcing Russia to sell, but at you know, deeply, deeply discounted prices. We're talking $30, $35 a barrel. They are allowing the price of oil to be low. They are keeping partners such as India happy. And they're also ensuring that while Russia is selling oil, it's not breaking even. Some would call that win-win-win. I want to think a bit about this, the China-India relationship. You, You did an episode of FP Live with Ashley Tellis, who worked on India policy during the Bush administration, and he cautioned that Washington should temper their expectations towards New Delhi. He said that while their interests may converge, it's unlikely that India would be willing to make any stronger commitments against China than it already has. So I wonder where you think this bet that Biden is making on the India-America alliance, where do you think it might 
pay off or where do you think it might head to? Mm, that's a great question. And I urge everyone to either listen to that interview or read the transcript we have on our website on foreignpolicy.com. Ashley is just a very deep, smart thinker on this issue. He would say that his piece was, you know, maybe that the headline was a bit melodramatic. The headline of his article in Foreign Affairs was, America's made a bad bet on India. And he would argue, in fact, that the bet itself isn't bad, but if U.S. policymakers are under the illusion that when there's a hypothetical war with China, India would come rushing to America's aid, then they are mistaken. Now, I don't know how many people are even expecting India to come to America's aid in that circumstances if there is a war, which, you know, let's face it, may never happen or maybe decades away, we don't know. There's so many hypotheticals involved. But I think what's clear or the sentiment that, that one can take away from this piece is that U.S. policymakers and indeed the world need to be very aware of what they're dealing with in New Delhi. New Delhi may make great shows of bonhomie with other countries, Modi especially, who you know is known for bear-hugging world leaders wherever he goes on his travels. It may give off this symbol, this sense that India is going to be very close and aligned with other countries, that there's this sort of synchronicity with India and other countries in the West. If that is the illusion, then I think Talis was trying to shatter that illusion. In other words, India will do India. Right. India, the way to understand India today and in the future is that this is a confident and growing in confidence nation that it believes that its time has come, that believes it can strike deals to its advantage, that believes that it has a huge demographic dividend coming its way, that its very young population is a market that other countries want to exploit, that it can leverage technology in a way that would allow it to leapfrog other countries, and that globally it is growing in clout. And you can see this in the way in which other countries are clamoring to do business with India. London rolls out the red carpet for uh, New Delhi. Washington has already. And other countries do as well. Everyone wants this big market that India has and will continue to have. And India is going to leverage that on the global stage. It is going to do so in a way that isn't going to care about values. It isn't going to kowtow to... Uh, a US-led vision or a West-led vision. In fact, India is going to go its own way and it's going to encourage other countries in the global South to also go their own way. India sees itself as a potential leader of the global South, an alternative voice on the global stage. And that really is the lens through which Western policymakers need to begin to see India. That's so interesting because I think sometimes when um, Western countries think about countries that were previously developing, are still developing, they think that those countries will behave in the way that they expect. But when you're talking about countries on the scale of India, I mean, not just not just the demographic size today, but the civilizational history, when you think about a nation like that, the same with China, they, when these countries acquire a certain amount of leverage in the world, they don't respond the way they used to respond or way other smaller countries respond. They respond in completely different ways. And I wonder if you think that when Modi spoke about a new world order is taking shape, 
whether that is what he means, that the world order is not going to look even like the multipolar world of the, of the uh, Cold War. It's going to look like something entirely different. Yeah, exactly. You know, even that word you use, behave, I think countries in the global south will respond badly to words like that because they see sometimes discourse in the West to be condescending as if they are sort of errant school kids who need to get in line or who need to sort of kowtow to a Western vision or ideal. And while that may have been the case during empire, or it may have been the case when America was just an overwhelmingly dominant singular force in the world order, I think a lot of these countries that are now rising up that have growing sort of GDPs, that have increasing clout in the world, and that also see a world in which the United States is overwhelmingly focused on competing with China. And therefore, to answer your question, they see not just one power center, but two power centers. And in such a bipolar kind of world, they feel that they can pick and choose. They can look for the better deal on either side. They can maybe ally with one on one area, but the other on a different area. They see opportunities. And I think it's important to recognize that when countries in the global South see opportunities, there's nothing wrong in that because in a sense, they are doing no different than rich Western countries are doing today or have ever done. They're just seizing what they see in front of them. Well, that, that's the essence of it, isn't it? That the West tends to make and break rules, but it expects other countries as they rise to respect the rules of the order they have created. But when they, right. when these countries reach the apex of, of the global order, they have no interest in following rules. They want to create rules. Right, exactly. And why should they follow the rules that were happened to have been set right after World War II? I mean, just, you know, if you look at the perspective, even of China here, which will say that, you know, if you look at the the post Bretton Woods order, you've got the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations, all of these big multilateral institutions were essentially set up by the West. They are headquartered in the West. You know, the United Nations is here in New York. They all have heads that are nominated by the West. Yeah. You know, the IMF has to have a leader that is European. The World Bank has to have a leader that is nominated by the United States. I mean, if you were China and you have risen up through the system by following the rules and then you're told well but you can't tweak the rules at all or if you're in india which has long clamored for a seat on the un security council and you're not allowed in uh, because of the veto power and because well the rules are just what they are we made them we made them and they're never going to change they're they're almost they're god-given rules they're god-given rules yeah yeah and and for many other countries that are rising these god-given rules are not only unpalatable, it also makes you question, well, who is this God exactly? Exactly. And, yeah. and, and can I can I start my own religion now? That's right. That's a good metaphor. This, this post-1945 God that gave the commandments in 1945. Yeah. Right. I mean, so basically we're entering an atheist world or or you know a multi-faith order. <laughs> yeah. But actually, on that note, I mean, do you think then that this trend of de-dollarization that's gaining momentum is likely to keep going because of course the global financial system is also a way that the west is is able to to keep power over its rivals yeah that's true i mean so this is a bit different in that i think for 
the dollar to significantly weaken, you need an alternative. And I just don't see a clear alternative. I don't see the arm emerging as a viable alternative for global finance. I mean, name one US-based or Western-based bank that would go for Chinese-denominated transactions. It just yeah. isn't going to happen. Hard to imagine, yeah, exactly. Yeah, same with you know blockchain. Just hasn't taken off in that way. Crypto. Think of other forms. You know, digital digital currencies. They're just not attractive in the same way as the U.S. dollar has been. And when you have an incumbent like that, I think in global finance, it is very difficult to shift. You can see erosions for sure. Um, yes. And, and, you know, I think U.S. sanctions play a big role in encouraging some countries to create alternative economies. I mean, think of how Iran functions entirely outside of the dollar world. I think Russia has now begun to do the same, North Korea, China, for example. There are lots of countries that look for their own alternatives, but they're not sizable enough yet. They haven't banded together yet to create a system that is global and that everyone else is going to sign up for. Yeah. Do you think, since we're talking about multipolarity, do you think that America, or let's say the Biden administration, has accepted that the world is becoming multipolar? In other words, have they accepted that America has passed its unipolar moment? No, quite simply no. I think they may deep down recognize that the world isn't what it was even 20 or 30 years ago. But I think this is very difficult for US policymakers to accept and imagine a world in which U.S. dominance isn't a thing. And look, America still is the world's dominant economy, the world's yeah. dominant force in almost every single domain you can imagine. It's just that clinging on to that dominance, I think, is pushing the United States into areas of overreach, whether it is sanctions, whether it is trying to constrain China, which, by the way, not, not all Asian countries want to happen. Yeah or whether it is you know, areas in which it is trying to force other countries to go along with its foreign policy. I think those areas of overreach almost imagine an era of unipolar dominance that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. I want us to talk about the rise of the global south. I thought it was interesting that straight after he left the US, Modi went to Egypt and he met Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And of course, you know, they say they have a strategic partnership. And But they said there's a need for the global South to have a concerted voice. And then earlier in this year, Sisi was invited to uh, India's Republic Day celebrations. And those things really matter in terms of how India, you were saying earlier, India sees itself as a potential leader of the global South. Is that how you interpret it, that he comes straight from one visit showing off India on the global stage in America, and then he goes to Egypt, which is one of the most important global South countries. Yeah, that is certainly one way of interpreting it. And look, I mean, none of these visits are by the by. They are planned months ahead of time. They are deeply deliberative. And some of this may, of course, be linked to CC having been invited as, as chief guest to India's Republic Day Parade. And if you look at the previous guests, for example, they include Bolsonaro in 2020, Ramaphosa 
of South Africa in 2019. So there's a tradition of inviting big leaders from big global mm-hmm. South countries. Interesting. But I think one way of seeing this as well is this year and India's presidency of the G20, which is, you know, when most countries host the G20 presidency, the average citizen in that country really won't know much about it. For example, when Indonesia was host last year, I can't imagine that, you know, the average person in in Bali really cared about it that much. But in India, it's very different this year. I mean, it's very hard to avoid giant billboards, you know, on the outskirts of New Delhi, celebrating India, hosting the G20 this year. And all year, there have been mini conferences and mini summits on specific issue areas that India's held sort of meetings to kind of assert itself as not only a leader, but a facilitator of discussions on big topics, whether it's climate change or technology or anything else of global global consequence. So this really, in some senses, is India's year. I think it has watched as the term Global South has become popularized mm-hmm. and it sees itself as the biggest faction, the biggest country in the Global South. And, you know, it sees itself as a test case. If it can be the voice of the Global South today, it can be a bigger player on the global stage tomorrow. And this is something that India cares about, but also Indians care about. The G20 and India's global role is the topic of constant conversation on Indian primetime TV, in Indian newspapers, in Indian advertising. It's a big part of the Indian psyche. That's such an interesting point, because that is something we often forget. We often elide the two. But actually, there's a huge difference between the politics and the government of India and ordinary people. But you're saying that even in this context, something that's very political, I mean, the G20 is a, a very political um, structure, that even in that, it, when it comes to this, Indians on the ground, as it were, really care about it. They care about the image that India has abroad. It's a very strange thing. I mean, you know, most Indians don't have passports. Most Indians have never left the country. And yet there's there's a great deal of, of sort of interest in how the rest of the world sees India. Uh, there's a great deal of interest in Modi's travels around the world. Um, before the pandemic, uh, the Indian media used to track just how many countries uh, he had visited. And it was, you know, a huge number of countries. They really see all of these things with pride. And I think some of it has to do with you know, a history of being colonized, a history of being portrayed in a certain way in the West, you know, often as poor and, you know, these images of, of poverty and, and, and a lack of food and a lack of proper housing, a lack of infrastructure. Yeah. And I think now that India is often associated with other things, with tech leadership, with the fact that so many CEOs of big American companies, whether it's Google or Microsoft, are you know Indians who studied in India and then moved to the West? They see yeah, that aspect is really important, crucially. They didn't grow up in, in the United States, they grew up in the Indian educational system, and now are at the apex of the tech world, right? Exactly. And there's a great deal of pride in, in look, one of our sons or daughters can, can make it big in the, in the West, and it's part of this larger sort of myth making as well. I think that you know, look, if they could do it, so can you. Our schools work, our education system works, and therefore our healthcare system works and our infrastructure works and our politics works and Modi works. I think that's what it all comes down to. It's a sense of confidence building, this sense of 
trying to build a vision and a sense of a successful state that also has a big future ahead of it. I mean, you can't have this many people where the median age is something like 28 or 29 you can't have that many people and not be optimistic. It's either that or you're fatalistic and you have to be optimistic, I think, to get by when you have that many young people. Hmm. I want to think a little bit about the, the Global South, but in terms of culture. Uh, when we had Fatima Ruto on the show, she talked about how America's dominance of, of pop culture is being gradually supplanted by the Global South. Like you think about K-pop in South Korea and Turkish soap operas, and of course the behemoth that is Bollywood, which is just one of India's film industries. <laughs> you, you, when we think about geopolitics, sometimes we think pop culture is a bit of an afterthought, but actually it can be very consequential. It's hard to think about US hegemony without thinking about you know, Hollywood and, and music and so forth. I wonder if India, I mean, India certainly having a moment now in terms of pop culture, you know, with the various films, especially RRR, which won, I think, won the Oscar and the Global Golden Globe. So I wonder if you feel that that is also an aspect of India that is shifting globally. I think it is. I don't think it's entirely new, however. I think Bollywood has long been a source of Indian soft power across the world. I mean, I've been to parts of Africa where I'm just shocked at how I sometimes meet people who just are able to sing Bollywood songs from the 60s and 70s. Wow. And they have no idea what they're singing. They don't understand the language, but they just sort of hum along to these tunes that they would watch in the cinemas when they were growing up. And this is in you know places like Addis or Nairobi or Durban. And so some of that soft power heritage is quite deep-seated and historic. I think it's growing and expanding now in very interesting ways. In the old days, it was Hindi only. You just cited RRR, which is obviously not in Hindi. So there's we're seeing the rise of not just well, Bollywood had already risen, but now there's Tollywood, which is the the Bengali film industry. You know, various sort of Hollywoods in other parts of the yeah. the yeah. country, and you know, a, a range of South Indian centers of excellence, Telugu, Tamil, many others, Marathi. So, you know, partly because India is so large and its diaspora is, is so big in so many other parts of the world, it is able to cater to those markets and find big audiences elsewhere, which then seeps into culture in those other countries as well. And the numbers just boggle the mind. I mean, it's, it's you know, I don't know if you follow cricket, but if you watch the Indian cricket team play at Lords in London, there are more Indians in the audience than, than Brits. I mean, and, and you could say the same for almost anywhere else that India plays, whether it's Auckland or Sydney, there are always more Indians there. And, and that's just because there, there are so many of them everywhere, but also the growing clout, the growing pride, things that I think Indians would do in private, or they'd be ashamed to share in public. They're much more open about, they're much more proud of. And mm. I think, you know, if you're a business in India, if you're an industry in India, you're going to cash in on that. And you're going to export more and more of the things that you produce, whether it's culture, whether it's film, whether it's theater, whether it's music. I mean, there are many Indian musicians now, South Asian musicians. I mean, if you look at Coke Studio in Pakistan, I mean, Coachella this year, which this will surprise many of your listeners, but I happened to be at this year. But, that, you know, it's almost seemed like South Asia had taken over. There were famous Pakistani singers and a very famous Indian singer, Diljit Dosanjh, 
And Indian culture now just, I think, has a space and a place that it really didn't 10 years ago. I want to finish by going back to the India-America relationship. And I want to ask you if you think that the closeness between them is likely to last. At the moment, their interests are aligned. But I think in the long term, it does feel as if they want things that are very different and maybe even incompatible. Do you think that the visions that they respectively have for the future are compatible? That's a great question. I think there are some things that will endure irrespective of the circumstances. So people-to-people -people ties, which are very strong. The Indian diaspora in the United States is, you know, numbering about 4 million. That's more than 1% of the entire U.S. population. And they're very visible and powerful, as we've been discussing. Highest median income of any other ethnic group in the United States. Those people-to-people -people ties, the growing business ties, the growing technology ties, a lot of those things, I think, will buttress the relationship in a way that will smooth over the policy differences that might arise between New Delhi and Washington. Mm. You know, in terms of their, their visions, I think for now, as you say, they are quite aligned on several areas. There's a great degree of realism on both sides. I think it's heartening for people invested in this relationship. It is heartening that they can overcome their differences. It is heartening that the United States and, the, and India can choose to agree to disagree on Russia, for example, and yeah. still find areas to cooperate on. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be ruptures. I think were there to be a US-China conflict of sorts over Taiwan, that I think could lead to ruptures between India and the United States and areas where they may be forced to choose and there might be some ripping off of a Band-Aid that could bruise either side. War, I think, and conflict always end up being areas that bring some disagreements to the surface in a way that ruptures relationship. So that's one thing to look out for. But otherwise, more broadly, I think what we've seen in the last few weeks with Modi's visit, with the bonhomie that we've seen on display between the two countries, that's a trajectory. And it's hard to disagree with trajectories. Do you think that as that bifurcation continues quite far into the future, can you imagine a, a future US president welcoming a future Indian prime minister with the same amount of pomp and ceremony? Or do you think that in time that bonhomie will give way to rivalry? For India to actually become a rival of the United States, it would need to grow its economy by orders of magnitude. You know, India is so small compared to China. So even for India to compete with China would take several decades. And the kind of sort of dramatic rapid growth that China had between the 80s and the early 2000s. So to make that kind of a projection about India being a rival to the United States is contingent on so many other things going right for India and maybe wrong for the United States. Remember, the United States is also actually growing fairly rapidly at this moment. So this is just too far in the future to really sort of put a finger on. For now, everything between the two sides seems to be aligned in favor of cooperation and sort of rising above differences where they exist. But 
if there were, for example, a conflict over Taiwan or the kind of big ticket issue that would force either side to make tough decisions, and that's India and the United States, that's when the politics might get trickier. And that's when the differences in values will really emerge and they won't be able to paper over them. Ravi Akrawal, thank you very much. Such a pleasure. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. If you'd like to hear more from Ravi, listen to Foreign Policy Live, a weekly podcast where he sits down with world leaders and policy experts to get their take on the issues that matter most. You can also find him on Twitter at Ravi Reports and find his book, India Connected, How the Smartphone is Transforming the World's Largest Democracy at All Good Bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com.